This is an AMI podcast. Hi there. Welcome to Connecting Disability on AMI-audio. I'm your host, Megan Gilmore, and I'm really glad to spend this time with you today. Today, we are going to reflect on what you learn after living with a disability for decades. Our guest is Brooke Allison, and if I was going to read out Brooke's full bio and accomplishments, that would take this entire show. So here's some highlights. Brooke is an associate professor at Stony Brook University in Stony Brook, New York, and she focuses on medical and health ethics as well as stem cell research and technology. She is also an accomplished author, and she joined us to talk about her latest memoir, Look Both Ways, which is her reflection on what she's learned about herself and disability and society after decades of living with quadriplegia. I really learned a lot from Brooke. She is thoughtful and smart and so accomplished, as you will soon hear. So I really hope that you enjoy this conversation. Hi, Brooke. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be on. It's a pleasure to be asked to have you. For people who may not know who Brooke Ellison is, like just tell our audience about who you are and what you do. So I grew up here on Long Island. I am right now 44 years old. When I was 11 years old, I was walking home from my first day of seventh grade. And in doing that, had to cross a major highway on Long Island. And while I was walking home, I was hit by a car, which was an accident that left me with many severe injuries, the lasting one of which was uh, a spinal cord injury. C2, C3, so very high up on my spinal cord that left me paralyzed from my neck down and on a ventilator to breathe. In the years since my accident, which is now 33 years ago, I've been trying to plot a path forward with my life, trying to find the aspects of my life in which I could make the biggest difference knowing that I had to rethink my life and think about the things that I was still able to do and how I was going to construct meaning around that. I returned to school a year after my accident, exactly a year after my accident to the day, and focused on my education, whereas much of my life before I was focused on extracurricular activities. And then I went to Harvard where I did my undergraduate and then master's degrees, and I ran for public office and started a nonprofit organization, and now I am an associate professor at Stony Brook University, and I focus on the sociology of science, medical ethics, and disability kind of as a construct from all aspects of disability. I also serve as the vice president for technology and innovation for the United Spinal Association, and just recently wrote my second book. My first book, Miracles Happen, I wrote about 20 years ago, right after I graduated from college and that got made into a movie directed by Christopher Reeve. His last uh, production before he passed away in 2004 and now just published my second book called Look Both Ways, which talks about kind of not just events in my life, but deep introspective lessons that I have learned by virtue of living with a disability and how important I think that is to who I am right now. So that's a little bit about me. Really, why you're on is to talk about your newest book, Look Both Ways, um, which I'm in the process of reading. I just wanted to ask you first, like, why did you decide to write this book 20 years after the first one? 
So, my first book came out about a year after I graduated from college. At the time of my graduation, there was a lot of attention being given to the fact that I was graduating. And so, my family and I put our heads together and wrote Miracles Happen. And it was a chronicling of events that we had undergone from the time of my accident in 1990 until I graduated from college in 2000. So, it was kind of almost like a diary. And it was a really important thing for me to do, an important way for me to be able to articulate parts of my life that maybe were challenging for me to articulate in the past. And then I knew that I had wanted to write another book, kind of almost like politics. Once it gets in your bloodstream, it's hard to get out. But I didn't really know what that was going to look like. I thought for a while that it would mostly be a continuation of Miracles Happen, of my first book, and largely just be kind of a chronicling of life events. Right before my 40th birthday, I became very sick. I was battling a severe pressure wound, which they are extremely debilitating and often life-threatening medical occurrences that people who live with paralysis often experience. And that was the case for me. I became very sick. I was fighting all sorts of infections. I made it through kind of the most acute part of that medical challenge. And that following summer, I said, you know, you need to take this opportunity now to write this, to put your thoughts down on paper. You might not have the opportunity to do it again. Your life can change so quickly. So I swirled myself away in my bedroom and said, okay, you need to start thinking about the things you really want to share. I knew that it was going to be much more than just events in my life, that I had learned really deep and important lessons because of living with a disability that I think are really important for people to know about. I wanted to talk about some of the struggles I had encountered, largely sociocultural struggles, right? Things that are built into the world, not necessarily just like the physicality of disability, but all these different kinds of frustrations I experience because the world doesn't fully understand what it's like to live with a disability or how much value should be ascribed to people's lives when they live with disability. And then kind of the second half of the book talking about lessons that I've learned, lessons of strength and empowerment and how they have been so deeply integrated into who I am. So that's kind of what I decided to do. And I forced myself to get it all on paper irrespective of the number of tears that I shed while doing it. One of the things that I've noticed uh, reading through your book is what you were just saying. It's not like a strict disability memoir, uh, which sets it apart actually from a lot of books in the genre. Why did you decide to go this approach, especially when, you know, like the first book was turned into a movie and you've had so many things happen in your life in the 20 years in between? Why did you decide that this book shouldn't be a strict memoir? Right. So, yeah, I am a sociologist. That's what I did my PhD in sociology. I knew that there were deeper things that uh, I wanted, that's not to say at all that memoirs written about disability are not deep. That's certainly not the case. But I thought that there were things that I could talk about beyond just my own experience that would be of relevance to many other people. I know that my own disability is not just my own experience. I understand disability from a very specific lens that it's not just the physical aspect of a person's personhood. It's all of these social factors like policies that we enact or like community supports that we put into place or technology that we innovate or the built environment or even how society has historically viewed people with disabilities that affect my life, that either enable me or further disable me. I wanted to make sure that everybody understood that there is a societal component to disability that we all need to appreciate. 
And you say at the beginning of the book that you had this kind of struggle about like how many times will I use the word disability in this book or not. You make these statements about how like the lessons of disability are actually for everybody, regardless if they have a disability or not. Is that kind of where the sociological part of it comes in? Well, yes, absolutely. But there's a sociology of disability also, right? There is a built societal infrastructure that relates specifically to disability, but also how I have come to understand disability. There is an epistemology or a knowledge structure that you gain by virtue of living with disability every day. There is a set of skills that you develop when you have to navigate a world that's not designed for you. These are virtues. I think that when people face challenge of many different kinds, you can choose to develop that very same skill set. The talents and the skills and the virtues that people ultimately incorporate into their lives living with disability are the very same skills that I think many people can develop when facing any kind of challenge if they understand it differently and understand it in terms of not complete impediments in their lives, but a new way of structuring their lives. So I think in that sense, it is applicable to everyone. It's part of this book that you do a lot of reflecting on your own life and particularly what you were thinking in the months after the accident and during rehabilitation and all that. How has your understanding of disability changed from what it was back then? Had somebody before my accident told me you were going to experience a severe, devastating accident and will live with quadriplegia thereafter, like, I don't know if I could have said okay, I'm going to be able to move forward with my life. I think that kind of information is almost too much for somebody to try to integrate into one's identity because of all of these social factors that we ascribe to disability. You can learn to understand and integrate into your identity the physicality of disability, but to try to take on the enormity of all the other things that I think people who don't live with disabilities think disability is all about, right? Like an inability to have a job, an inability to have a relationship, an inability to go to school or to be a part of the community. Like, I think these are all things that we tend to believe are part of somebody with disabilities lives like I think all of those things probably would have been too much for me to try to deal with before my accident and I think I also understood people with disabilities to be those who we should pity those who could be marginalized like I had a very I think stereotypical understanding of disability that I think many people in the world typically have right that a disabled life is a tragic life or a pitiful life or some kind of lesser version of what everybody else gets to experience and I know now how wrong that is. Also, it's very difficult to understand a disability like my own, that's the result of an accident, to understand it in terms different than the actual accident that precipitated it. So my accident was extremely traumatic, very devastating to me, physically speaking to my family. Obviously, everything was turned on its head in a very short amount of time. So it took a long time for me to say, wait a second, I can understand my life separate from that. I can understand my life without having to think about all the trauma and the devastation that my body underwent and that my family underwent and still feel good about who I am. And like that was something that took me a really long time to come to terms with. 
One of the parts that I found really interesting is there's a portion of it uh, where you start talking about just some of the general ways that disability is discussed in popular culture and in the media. And the narrative, which shorthand, we often have like disability is inspiration. And you mentioned how there's many people uh, with disabilities who we really like kind of resist that narrative. I'm sure those around me have probably like actually seen me like physically tense up. If I feel like somebody is like now putting me on like some inspirational pedestal you kind of go about that idea in a different way talk about how like it's not always a bad thing when people are describing disability in those ways and I just wanted to give you the chance to explain more why you don't think it's always such a bad thing so you know, I fully understand the idea of your disability inspiration porn and how people who don't live with disability tend to value their lives or understand their lives in some kind of superior terms by kind of creating some kind of social hierarchy that they can benchmark their lives against. I know how demeaning it often is if you see somebody in the supermarket or whatever and they stop you and tell you, oh, you're such an inspiration just for like doing basic things, right? I totally understand that's annoying and can be offensive. This happened to me more times than I can ever admit to. At the same time, I think embedded in that, and I think it's, it's at least worth acknowledging, is that there is an awareness that the world is not designed for people with disabilities in mind. I think that people fundamentally understand that society in general has not done a good enough job in making sure that people with disabilities are included. I think that there is something of value to be found in people's lack of willingness to accept that and say, okay, wait a second, I'm going to forge ahead with my life despite the fact that the world is not ready for me. And I think people see that and say, wait a second, if this person is doing that, there's something important to be acknowledged about that. There is value to be found in that. I think that people are, are not necessarily just trying to benchmark their own lives with respect to somebody else's life. I think that there is an understanding of the fact that we need to be doing a better job and if somebody else is willing to be as strong and resilient and persistent to make the most of a world that's not set up for them, I think it forces people to rethink how they understand other people's lives. And I think there's value in that. And I know you talk about an experience in the book, and I know I've had this experience as well in like smaller ways than you have. So I, I'm legally blind. I use a cane often when I'm out because it's a small cane, so I can fold it up pretty quick. And I was at a pharmacy checking something out at the checkout counter, and I think my cane ended up on like the checkout, <laughs> and it was folded up. And the, and the cashier paused and said, like, oh, like, is that a white cane? Like, are, are you visually impaired? And I was like, yes. And I'm getting all ready for the, like, here we go again. Um, and she goes, you know, a friend of mine was just diagnosed with vision loss. And I was just wondering, like, do you have any advice for how I can be a good friend to her right now? And I was like, oh. And there was this moment where I was like, thank God I did not say anything in that 30 seconds <laughs> between, like, her question, right? right? Because... Exactly my point. Like, if we constantly have our backs up and are, like, on guard all the time, we can miss a really important opportunity. I'm sorry. I didn't no, no, that's totally okay. Yeah. Um, and I know, like, you've talked about the experience of meeting other parents whose children have just been diagnosed with quadriplegia and their family and they describe like this shell-shocked look on the parents faces that they're trying to comprehend what is kind of incomprehensible 
um, at the beginning. So one of the other things that you kind of force people to look a little differently is this narrative that's been emerging in the past few years. I know I've experienced this a lot as a journalist where there is some pushback to the amount of disability stories that focus on parents and families and people asking like, why are we always talking about the parents? You know, why aren't we talking about the children? Why are, why are these stories so centered on the parents' narrative? And one of the heroes of your book and of your story is your mother, um, all your family members, but your mom particularly, the day of your accident was her first day at a job that she had worked hard to get. And she chose to put aside that ambition to help you through rehab. So make your case for why we need to be listening fuller to the story of parents when it comes to our whole disability conversation. And I think you're exactly right. It's not just parents. It's, it's entire families. But it's been my experience and over the years, particularly since the Brigellison story was made into a movie, that people who have undergone similar circumstances, they reach out to me or to my family to just, they want to know how life is possible, especially when they have gone from living without disability to living with disability. They're certainly not an inborn instruction manual with how best to navigate these waters, right? It is a very steep and immediate learning curve, and people just want to have a sense that things are going to be okay again, right? That life is going to make sense again. That's a hard lesson to try to communicate to somebody who's trying to just figure out everything else, right? And like, just as you had mentioned just before, right? Like, even in your own life, there's almost like this constant being on guard, constant fear that somebody is going to mistreat either you or the person you love. And that is extremely emotionally taxing. And I know that that was the case for my parents for a long time. After my accident, always feeling like I was at peril or that somebody was going to say something hurtful to me or that the world was going to deny me some opportunity or that somebody was going to stare at me and that I was going to feel like less of a person as a result of that. I think that that's what many parents fear about their kids. Irrespective of anything that they might be facing with a disability or not, they don't want their children to be mistreated. I think the fear is that kids with disabilities are going to be much more likely to experience those kinds of things. So there's this almost this hypervigilance that parents of kids with disabilities experience that is very difficult, very taxing. So parents of kids with disabilities talk to me and want to know, like, how do I make my child's life quote-unquote normal? It's always, you know, the same that it happens. Families find a sense of normality again you had to learn to do things differently. But in those experiences, there's no less importance or significance than anything else. You just have to learn how to appreciate those instances as being different, but no less good in their value. Kids are surprisingly strong and that there is a path forward. There's a future for your child, whether or not it was the future you had initially anticipated their lives being. And they can go on and do incredibly important and significant things if you trust that that's the case. I think that in many parents who had children who were in the rehabilitation center with me, they didn't see that. It's a hard thing to try to visualize immediately after a life-changing accident has transpired. It's almost like okay, everything is a disaster now. Nothing is ever going to be the same. Nothing's ever going to be right again. But that's just not the case. 
The other part of your family's story is also your siblings, and you spend a good portion of this book helping people unpack the relationship of siblings and disability. Uh, listeners of the show know we did an episode a couple of months ago just all about that. In this part of the book, you talk about how, like, if you could go back and change one thing in your life, it wouldn't necessarily be the day of the accident, but it would be how you thought about yourself and your family unit after the accident, which I thought was a really insightful comment. What is that thing that you would change if you could go back and why would you change it? That chapter was probably the most difficult chapter for me to write. Thinking about myself and the impact that my accident had on my entire family, particularly my siblings, was something I just, for decades after my accident, did not want to think about. It was too emotionally difficult, too traumatic for me to think about, but I forced myself when I was writing this book to think about these things and try to articulate what I was actually thinking and feeling, and that took days to just wade through those kinds of emotionally laden memories. When I talk about my sister and my brother, I had to think a lot about who I was at 11 years old, 12 years old, 13 years straight up until basically when I went off to college. For many of those years, I understood myself to be the one who was obviously most impacted by my accident. And that, you know, because I was dealing with the lion's share of life-altering experiences and everybody else ought to just accommodate themselves to my own hardship, that everybody else should just kind of follow suit, that I was going to have to live on a ventilator and have to get suction throughout the course of the day and take up a lot of my parents' time and, you know, because of me, you would not go on vacations that we typically go on or do things that many families typically do like I thought that everybody else just ought to accommodate to those kinds of things and not really ever have to think twice about it years down the line I was able to say wait a second my sister and my brother they lost out or they experienced their childhood in a vastly different way that maybe they didn't want as a result of my accident and like that is important that's important to talk about and to think about talk a lot about my brother a younger brother at the time of my accident we were still are you extremely close extremely emotionally close and you know, he lost me in the role that i had typically played in his life right? getting down on the floor and playing with you know, together and riding bikes together and then he also you know, my mother was away at the hospital with me for nine months so she, she was gone two kind of maternal very at least very close relationships in his life you know, were gone for nine months and like he was only 10 years old at the time and then you know my mother and my father after i came home from the hospital you know, in my bedroom with me taking care of your medical needs throughout the course of the day for many hours of the day he had to find his own way forward right so he was you know like memorizing the globe up in his bedroom for hours on end you know, that is a big deal especially in those really important formative years of childhood and early adolescence right so like i needed to be much more aware of that and I wish I had been more aware of that when I was a lot younger rather than thinking about like me as you know the centerpiece of the family you're thinking about just myself as only just one-fifth of my family you know one-third of my parents kids and I think I understood you know the disproportionate attention that I got as just something that I deserved or ought to have when I don't think that's actually the case. What prompted you to change the way you thought about it? 
I think it took a lot of self-analysis. I think it took a lot of putting myself in my siblings' place a bit more than I had. If my life had been their lives, how would I have felt about that? How would I have felt if there was much more attention given to one of my other siblings and I didn't have an ability to vocalize things that I would have been thinking or feeling. And you know, my sister and my brother never did that. They never questioned anything. They never felt like they could question anything, I think. And like, I don't know if that was fair for me to expect that of them. And it wasn't until I switched that a little bit more that I could think a little bit more deeply about what they may have wanted to get out of their childhood experience and you know, I spoke to my sister I spoke to my brother about it because I wanted to make sure that I wasn't mischaracterizing what they could have experienced or thought like I said neither one of them would have ever said otherwise but when I really kind of put a little bit more empathy into the situation you know we talked about things that I think were of importance to them and I'm glad that I was able to foster a conversation that could allow them to feel open enough to talk about that. What did you learn the most when you were going through writing the book? Oh, gosh. That I could talk about things that are difficult to talk about. And in doing that, it takes some of the difficulty out of it. I don't know if I could talk about my sister and my brother in the same way before I wrote this without bursting into tears or just avoiding the conversation altogether. Same thing with talking about love, talking about sexuality and disability, right? Like these are things that I think we view as things that you don't really talk about. And I said, wait a second, there's something I need to talk about. I'm not having it anymore. I'm not going to deny myself the opportunity to talk about things that are really important. So you're not just an author. For listeners, if you Google Brooke's name, one of the first things that will come up is your political involvement. You ran for New York State Senate in 2006 under the Democrat Party. Why do you think it's important for people with disabilities to consider being publicly involved in the political sphere? It's a really important question. I very much have a mind that people with disabilities need to be seen in every part of society. In elected office, you certainly notwithstanding, I view people with disabilities, you know, as we talked about, as having you know, a very important skill set that we often ascribe to leadership roles, being able to navigate difficult waters, you know, exercising leadership, you know, being hopeful, being resilient. And certainly because they represent such a huge portion of society and they live with the effects of policies that are made. Made, they need to be equally represented in the world and you know, they need to be seen in every legislative body or any decision-making capacity because they have so much to offer. Their skills are of value to everyone and their voices ought to be heard. So I would encourage anybody with a disability to run for a political office and be vocal in terms of the things that you experience, right? People with disabilities, I think, disproportionately experience the effects of policy measures that that society generally experiences because their lives are often so contingent on them and it's just fundamentally unfair for them to not be a part of these conversations. It's just for me running for office, I think, was one of the most important things that I did, despite the fact that I did win the election. You know, I learned a lot about who I am and the voice that I have and my ability to be a part of public conversations. Like, that is a really big deal. You know, so I feel nothing but tremendous gratitude for having the opportunity to do that that and what I learned from it. And I would encourage that of anybody who is even just the slightest bit interested in this way. Obviously, like, there's a lot of value of being involved in the political process, even running for office. But as you mentioned in your book, and as people 
mentioned elsewhere, the passage of the Americans with Disabilities Act did not automatically bring about this 100% accessible, equitable society in the United States of America. Like, that's not true. Yeah, no, not even yet. <laughs> 30 years later, if not more. So what do you think are some of the limits of politics like how should people be realistic in the way that they go about um like engaging in the political process what can politics do and what can't it do and how do you balance that the ada has approached disability from a very particular mindset that disability is something that is purely compliance based right or mandate based that if you are you make yourself accessible in x y and z ways you know you have met the threshold you don't need to do anything more than that i think that's been pretty detrimental into how people disabilities live their lives in the United States or really anywhere that you think you're kind of like offered this modicum of accessibility and you should just be happy with that. And I think that's just not fair. I think that's not right at all. When you live with disability, it's not enough to just make something modestly accessible. We need to understand accessibility in terms of opportunity, right? That everybody is better off when you're including everybody's voice. When you make accommodations for people with disabilities, you're ultimately making accommodations for everybody you're improving everybody's life it took a very long time but even we're not to that point yet that the legislative changes that the ada enforced that did not bring about a tidal wave of public goodwill when you're constantly talking about things in terms of your mere accommodations or compliance you're not going to get people to buy into that it's just like what is the bare minimum that i have to do to not be held accountable for or liable for not doing what i'm supposed to do like until we change the conversation to one of opportunity and one of making everybody included and how we all benefit from that then people are still going to be resistant to these kinds of changes and still look at accessibility as is some kind of forced obligation that people have to try to do rather than understanding it as something that makes everybody better off and i think that that's how the ada has largely approached accessibility is just this mandate oriented we need to do this kicking and screaming rather than wait a second we are missing out on a very important part of the population who could use some real important good if we think about this differently that didn't come out about in the ada and now like you're a professor and i know that like you've spoken very highly of your experiences especially at harvard and the things that you learned and the people that you met but you've also been very honest about some of the challenges that you faced as a student with a disability now that you're on the other side or, like the education side of it like how have you seen post-secondary education change for students with disabilities largely education has been kind of the forefront of making these kinds of changes possible and understanding inclusion as to be more than just offering a modicum of an opportunity but actually something that everybody benefits from i think that educators see how children develop differently by virtue of having exposure to kids with other experiences teachers see that probably more prominently than just about anyone at the time of my accident in order for me to get back into school it took a lot of fighting it took a lot of advocacy on my family's part it was originally thought that my presence in the classroom was going to be disruptive or was going to make other students feel uncomfortable 
already. I think that that is a little bit less so now, but like that was not the case at the time of my accident or shortly thereafter. Like we had to fight and fight and fight for this to be a possibility. I think that kids now are seen as inherently valuable in and of themselves. I think that when you see inclusive strategies integrated into schools and playgrounds and textbooks and that kind of thing, people generally feel good. I think people want to see that happen. It dovetails a bit with some of the infantilization of disability, right, that we understand and appreciate it a lot more when it's in kids than we do in adults, right? So I think that's a piece of the equation as well, but we need to, like, try to bridge that a little bit and understand people with disabilities uh, as adults as, you are not necessarily children, but also deserving of these additional adjustments in their lives and adjustments to the world. But I think the school setting has really led that charge. Harvard has been and was the time that I was a student there very willing to do as much as I could to make my inclusion in the classroom a possibility. Now, 25 years later or thereabout, it's a long time coming for sure, but now they're looking to advance disability as an important part of inclusion. And they started a campaign to make sure that students and faculty members and staff can talk about their disability and feel proud of it. So like that's, I think, an important step forward. They are very much on you know a standard bearer in terms of education i think the changes they make to their pedagogy and to their structure architecture infrastructure can set the stage for many others to follow but before we move on to the final questions is there anything else that you would want to say or like people want to learn more about you and your work where they should go that type of thing sure you could follow me on social media on twitter uh twitter extent twitter still exists uh, <laughs> it's just at brooke m ellison so brooke with an e m uh for my middle name mckenzie and then ellison e-l-l-i-s-o-n you can find me on facebook but also to whatever extent facebook exists my uh website which is just brookellison.com and yeah i'm looking to do a lot more writing a lot more publishing on all of these aspects of disability but mostly how a disability needs to be understood vastly differently than it has been and like our entire approach to disability needs to be entirely deconstructed and then reconstructed based on virtues and based on the value that people with disabilities bring to the world and to the communities of which they're a part until we make that change in our heads is going to be less likely for the additional changes at a societal level to happen. You're speaking of virtues, not to spoil the entire book for listeners, but there is a portion of the book where you talk about patience and how quadriplegia has really forced you to learn to wait and be patient and to do that well. Um, and I know that's something I struggle with, and I think that's something a lot of people do, but I would I'll just say like my friends who have different disabilities that impact their mobility, that is probably one of the main things that they teach me like all the time. So because the show is called Connecting Disability, um, we just kind of always ask people to kind of like on how that looks in their life. So right now, even like with the many, 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 many accomplishments that you've had, like what are some of the ways that your disability and the social like structures around it make it difficult for you to connect with other people? Well, I think particularly during the pandemic, it was very challenging for me, like like to the point of uh, becoming like emotionally detrimental. Yes, I, I tend to be a very extroverted, connected person. Who I am is the product of the relationships that I have in my life. And then like that's how I get through each day. And when I didn't have an opportunity to do that, I, like that was extremely challenging. I have a surgery scheduled for the beginning of May, pretty 
significant one that I need to get taken care of. And it's looming on the horizon, like a source of some anxiety. I've had some health-related complications over the course of the past several years that have been really difficult. And when you, you don't have people around you to help shoulder that, it can be extremely burdensome. You know, I talk a lot about hope, and I understand hope to be kind of a very action-oriented construct that acknowledges the challenges in our lives or the kinds of things that we might conceive of as impediments, but allows us to acknowledge them, acknowledge the pain that we might experience as, as a result of that, but then move forward with our lives nonetheless. And having people in our lives, I view, is absolutely critical to that actually happening. Whenever I talk about my friends, I talk about how they are the superheroes in my life, you know, the people who um, have made my life what it is. And if I can do that to somebody else, I feel very grateful. So I'm very excited now to do that a little bit more of a personal, hands-on way now that we're almost on the other side of this a really difficult societal experience that we've all undergone. Mm, yeah. Yeah. So just building on that, like what are some of the practical ways that Good Connection looks like for you? I have made it a point to speak to a different friend at least once a week. Instead of setting aside an hour, two hours, where I say, okay, this is my dedicated time to just be with the people who I care about. Like, that's really important to me, making sure that I don't feel isolated, because I know that challenge in general can seem isolating. Disability can often be isolating, but just, like, be very mindful about that and how your own mental health can suffer when you don't try to remain in contact with the people who care about you. So that's how I do it. Phone calls, whatever kind of media I can use, and then seeing them now as frequently as I possibly can. That's great. Actually, um, I'm going to Boston this weekend to see a friend. So I will think of you if we are near Harvard. Brooke, thank you so much for your time. Um, I really appreciate it. Thanks for sharing, sharing some time with us. Thank you, Megan. Thank you, everybody. It was a pleasure. Connecting Disability is a production of AMI-audio. It's written and produced by me, Megan Gilmore, with technical production by Nizreen Abdel-Majid. Andy Frank is the manager of AMI-audio. Special thanks to our guest, Brooke Ellison. I'm so glad we got to meet. And a special personal thanks to my friend, Grace. Uh, she was my travel companion in Boston. She is a great friend, a great driver, a great co-podcast listener. And Grace, baklava flavored everything from here on out. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. We'll connect next time. Bye.